0: Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast, brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. For those of you paying close attention, that's right, we have a slight tweak of our name. We are now the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast. It is the same great fellowship. We just wanted to make it clear that justice is central to the work of each of our amazing fellows. Speaking of, I hope you have all had a chance to read the most recent essay from Crystal Vasquez on how natural disasters disproportionately harm the disabled community. As an atmospheric chemist, Crystal takes readers thousands of feet into the air through wildfire smoke, and goes on to lay out a case that we as a society need to build a more just disaster planning and response system. It's an excellent piece and you can read that and all the fellow's work at ehn.org under our special projects tab. On to this week's show, we are doing things a little bit different. Dr. Ami Zoda, founder and director of Agents of Change, hosts a conversation with Dr. Shauna Swan from Mount Sinai and Annie Huang a medical student at the University of California in San Francisco and a master's of public health student at Harvard. They talk about the intersection of environmental chemicals, fertility and health, equity and justice. This is a can't miss episode. And this all comes just a month after Shana Swan's groundbreaking book, Countdown, that looked at environmental chemical exposure and declining fertility. Enjoy. Enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone. Um, My name is Ami Zoda, and I'm going to be your host today for our latest Agents of Change and Environmental Health podcast. I'm joined on this beautiful spring day um, by Dr. Shauna Swang and Annie Huang. Uh, I'm going to briefly turn to them so they can introduce themselves. Let's start with um, Shauna.
2: Hi. um, Thanks, Ami, for setting this up and giving me an opportunity to talk on your wonderful Agents of Change podcast. Um, I'm an environmental um, epidemiologist, I should say environmental and reproductive primarily. And um, I work at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. And um, I have uh, I wrote a book called Countdown, came out February 23rd. And um, it um, has kept me really busy since then, telling everybody about what's in the book, the importance of the book. And I'm really happy to be able to share some of that on your podcast. Thank you. Annie?
3: Um, yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here. My name is Annie. I am currently a medical student, um, MD candidate at the University of California in San Francisco, or UCSF. And I'm also a master's of public health student at Harvard.
1: And you're also a current agent. Yes. Of- yes. <laughs> Yes, I am a current Ages of Change fellow, and I'm really excited. Okay, so why don't we get started? Um, Shauna, why don't you um, kick, help us kick off this conversation? And I'm sure you've now done this several hundred times. Can you you know, tell us a little bit about your new book? What is it about, and uh,
2: what motivated you to write it? Sure. So um, you can't see this, but um, the title of the book is Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. So that's pretty broad and um, kind of scary. Um, And um, the way I came about writing this book, which, by the way, I have a co-author, her name is Stacey Colino. um, And uh, how we came to write this book was, uh, that I got called by an agent uh, after there was a big media stir, if you will, following the publication of um, our 2017 paper, a meta-analysis which showed that sperm count had declined dramatically over 40 years and uh, at about the rate, a little faster than 1% per year. Um, I'd previously written several papers like that, uh, looking at this question earlier, all the way back to 1997. But this was different because, first of all, it was a very big study. It was very um, well done using state-of-the-art methods. And, um, but it was also maybe coming at a better time. I'm not sure. But what happened was, that this time, people listened and paid a lot of attention. And it was, I think, the 27th most cited paper in the year uh, and um, and, and was on the cover of Time and Newsweek and all this kind of thing. So um, that was exciting and interesting and led to this agent contacting me and saying, would you write a book about this? So um, I was reluctant because I always thought of myself as an academician. I only talked to other academicians, primarily, uh, and published in academic journals. And I didn't think that I would uh, be able to speak in a way that would reach people, although I felt it was important. And that's when Jane suggested uh, that I find a co-author. And um, Stacy Colino had interviewed me for Vox, uh, covering the 2017 paper, and we'd gotten along and I liked what she did with that story. So we talked and she became my co-author. And um, we it's a great combination because I have the science behind me and the experience, and she has the voice. And she's able to talk in a way that people hear much better than I am. Um, and so um, we published this book, and the, the what the book is about, it's... Everywhere. And what I feel and write about in the book is that while there are lifestyle factors driving this, um, that the primary agents driving this decline and other reproductive declines are chemicals in the environment, and particularly those that are hormonally active, which we call endocrine disruptors. So I'll stop
1: there. Thank you. Um, both fascinating and terrifying. Um, Annie, can you share some of your initial impressions of the book? Um, was the information new to you? Was this topic discussed in medical school?
3: Yeah, great questions. Um, first of all, I thought it was a, a phenomenal read. I thought it was written in a very accessible way. You were talking about writing to academics, and I thought I could read it and and really appreciate your message, um, especially when you, you it's always so... Um, uh, I guess, challenging to go into the alphabet soup of chemicals, but I thought it was done in a way that I could really take away and understand. And I think many readers um, would similarly find that engaging and informative. Um, And it was an eye-opener for me. So most of the information was absolutely new to kind of see the deleterious, like the undeniable trend of how deleterious changes in our environment and the everyday chemicals in which we come into contact um, can have such a negatively... And yet, profound impact on our fertility and reproduct- reproduction for generations—that kind of intergenerational impact—that um, I thought you very much emphasized, and um, and how it impacts, like you said, both sexes, um, both men and women. Um, uh, and you also went into how it also affects people, kind of along the everywhere on the gender spectrum as well. And I thought that was very profound. And kind of to quote from your book, you called it a reproductive reckoning. And I thought that was a very great way of putting it. Um, And uh, yeah, but most of it was new. um, But I actually learned about kind of this um, trend, so to speak, of sperm counts and, and decreasing fertility on a whole um, on a whole, in in medical school, I think towards the end of my first year and the beginning of my second year, um, but that was through an elective. That was because I sought it out. I sought, you know, you're kind of speaking to someone who have kind of drank the Kool Aid, so to speak, and understand, you know, and is into environmental and reproductive justice. And that was through an elective through an environmental health uh, program at my medical institution. So that was a unique opportunity to learn. But that I would say is the exception more than
1: the rule. Thank you. Um, it's great. Thank you for sharing your insight. Um, so our podcast and our program, more generally, we're working with um, scientists and scholars from backgrounds historically excluded in science and academia. So they often come from um, marginalized populations. And one of the themes is, you know, they you know, come from a wide range of uh, disciplines like medicine, engineering, uh, public health. Um, but they're all working um, in different and unique ways to advance um, health and, and justice. And um, and so, uh, you know, I want to kind of steer our conversation in kind of, wh- you know, the crossroads of where the evidence on environmental chemicals and fertility intersects with health equity and justice. So Shauna, why don't you start us off? Um, what is the state of science uh, with respect to differential impacts?
2: So um, differential impacts, complicated question. Let me break it down into a couple of parts. First of all, we have differential exposure. So um, you know, and have published on the differential uh, levels of uh chemicals, environmental chemicals, endocrine disturbing chemicals in people uh, across various uh, racial ethnic groups, economic groups, and so on. So um, that is a really big one. We're not all equally exposed. Secondly, um, what's much less well known, and we actually just have a paper on this um, being submitted, which is that the effects of a given chemical at a different at a given level is different according to mm. the um, economic and racial social position of that person in their lives in and in the community. For example, um, I'll just tell you very specifically, um, we're, we're looking at the association between um, bisphenol A and some neurodevelopmental impact, impacts. And um, it, my study has four centers uh, that's the um, TIDE study. And one of those centers is in Rochester, New York, and the others are elsewhere in the country. The center in Rochester, New York, recruits um, primarily Medicare patients, and they tend to be disadvantaged. And the other centers include mostly private patients, and they tend to be middle, upper middle class white. So we have a very big split in our study uh, based on center. And so we looked at the impacts of bisphenol A on neurodevelopment and we found not only that there were higher levels of bisphenol A in Rochester, but that they had a greater, actually an adverse effect on the endpoint we were looking at, which is um, social responsiveness. Uh, But the other centers actually had a somewhat, although not significantly protective effect. So it was hugely different for even the same levels Uh, what the impact was, okay? Um, The third part of this is that we had a relatively small number of people who were disadvantaged. And that's because most studies that are done of this kind are done where it's easy to collect information. It's easy to get patients to come in. And that tends to be those who are middle-class, educated, interested in the science, busy people with bunches of kids and job problems just don't have time to participate in these studies. So we have, we have problems all along the way. And my study tides is a good example of that.
1: Uh, thank you for sharing both the state of the science, um, as well as current problems in our current approach to public health research and, and, and medical research. Um, Annie, I want to pull you in here, um, given the lack of data on diverse populations and, you know, the fact that you seek to provide clinical care for the medically underserved, um, you know, what do you think about the generalizability of these results to the populations that you interact with? And, and, um, and, and, you know, generally, do you think that chemical threats to reproduction is an issue of environmental reproductive justice? Um
3: yeah, these are these are these are tough questions, I, I I think. And these are great questions in the sense that um I guess to your to uh, I guess regarding environmental and reproductive justice, um you you really can't think one without the other. So obviously when I when I look at studies and I look at the conclusions um, that uh, Shauna and, and other scientists have, have come to, I always think about well, how does this apply to the population? I'm serving. How does this apply to the patient in front of me? And that's always a question that I think every clinician is always grappling, um, and, um, and 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 will continue to 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 grapple. So I think Shauna's point about um, being more proactive in representing underserved groups will. Will will go a long way in mitigating that. Um, And then thinking about chemical threats to reproduction. When I think about reproductive justice, I think about at at the core of it is that bodily autonomy. Right. And and at the core of it is to be able to be able to have children and parent children in a, in a safe environment. And that is where I, I see that link to environmental justice um, to be able to have a healthy pregnancy, to be able to um, parent your, your child in an environment um, um, uh, and w- without being um, uh without thinking about how your environment and where you live and what you eat and, and the water in which you drink can negatively impact your health and your, your, your children's health and, and their children's health as well. So I think that's where I, I, I really do see the link. Um, and, uh, and I, and I guess when I think about chemical threats, I think about, um, mostly disadvantaged folks, you know, like in, and I think in, in Shauna, your, your book, you know, speaks a little bit about this, about um, like one, one, one example, I think everyone has come into kind of the national conscience is is water, right? And water equity, you know, people know about Flint, Michigan, um, the current situation in in Newark. And then when you think about that, um, and you think about the lead that's in the water, you obviously, you think about who lives in Flint, and who lives in Newark, and who's being exposed. Um, And so that's, that's what is kind of on top of my mind. And that's how we can kind of start integrating explicitly equity into these conversations.
1: And Shauna, um, you brought up the fact that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very hard as an epidemiologist to, to get, um, you know, to work with the communities that, um, often are disproportionately impacted because they have less time to participate in these studies. And, you know, there's also this tide, this very kind of real um, tide of, you know, both contemporary and historical um, exploitation of um, black and brown people by um, medical research. Um, So especially as you're writing this book and you're going around talking and you have your new study out, you know, that's, that's kind of grappling with um, these differential impacts. Do, do you have any thoughts or recommendations um, about how you may you know approach research epidemiologic research differently in the future, or any thoughts about um, advice to the to the environmental epidemiologic community?
2: Yes, um, great question um, i um, I think first of all, that the community broadly across all strata should be asked about the research they want to have conducted there. And uh, at Mount Sinai, we have a wonderful community outreach program and there is a lot of participatory research. Um, But I I just want to share an anecdote because I think it's really relevant. Some years ago, I was asked to investigate a problem in uh, Canada, in a First Nation community, uh, the Amjanang, who had been exposed to very, very high levels of oil, uh, of pollution from oil refineries. And they had a very skewed sex ratio. There were very few males being born. You probably haven't heard about this because it's not in the news now. But um, so I went there. And I spent some time, I decided I would have to talk to people and have to learn about the community. I I actually checked into a motel and stayed there for a while. Um, And I began to meet the elders of the community and talk to people and to go to some community meetings. And what we finally decided was that I would do a study, a small study, to ask people whether they wanted a study at all. Mm. And and we did that. Um, And the answer was no. And as I delved into that, I realized why they didn't want that. And it was made a lot of sense. First of all, they, um, their land was sacred. So if we found a problem and it meant they had to move, they could not do that. That's something I never would have thought about, right, without talking to them and understanding them. Um, then I learned that they worked in those oil refineries and they were afraid for their job. If they participated. And thirdly, that if we found that area was dangerous, <laughs> their property values would go down. So even if they wanted to sell, they couldn't. So for all of those reasons, they said, no, we do not want to study here. And I left. So that's always stayed with me as as, you know, the 1st Responsibility, if you will, of an investigator to, to ask whether the people being investigated really want that study. I don't always do that, but I I like to think about that and, and keep that in the back of my mind.
1: A very powerful anecdote, and I think this is one of the first times I've heard a researcher doing almost like a pre-study just to find out, you know, in a systematic way whether they're you know, their expertise, um, is wanted. Um, Annie, do you have any thoughts or responses or anything you'd like to share about either the work you've done, um, community engaged work you've done in terms of best practices or, or models that you've seen that have or haven't worked?
3: Yeah. I mean, Shauna's, um, anecdote really, uh, um, gives a powerful lesson in, in how, academics policymaker people of influence and power um, sh- should be more responsive to the community and then that's exactly what you just said and then I thought that was a very powerful way of putting it um, and and uh, yeah and as far as best practices I mean that's I always go back to the community anytime I, I do research anytime I'm I'm trying to advocate for um, uh a policy or change. I always go back to the community. I go back to the community organizing leaders. I go back and I ask permission. Um, and I, you know, ask for, uh, especially if I'm not from that community, I, I, um, I want to elevate their voices and make sure that their voices and preferences are heard. Um, and I think Shauna put that in a much better way than I did through, through her story, but that's what
1: I think about. Okay, so now I want to move on to really, you know, Shauna's done, um, collated and both has done a lot of the primary research on, um, chemical exposures and, and reproductive harm and has done this impressive job of collating it in a way that's accessible to a broad audience. So, um, Shana, you're, you're out there, you're, you're talking about your book, people are reading it, um you know, who do you think will care about this? And um, especially with our ongoing crises, um, we're still in the COVID pandemic, uh, climate change impacts are more and more real every day. Um, How does this crisis of reproduction fit into the mix?
2: Well, we're certainly overwhelmed (laughs) on all social strata, I think. Um, And, but a couple of things. One is I'd like to point out that um, certainly the climate change and the um, reproductive crisis are not separate. Um, uh, so uh, the chemicals that I'm most concerned about um, are those that are made from petroleum byproducts. And so they the rise of the production of these chemicals and the rise of temperatures and uh, other climate problems have gone hand in hand. So I think that the more that I can talk about this intersection, uh, the, the better. I also talk about the trajectory of these problems, which is, I see kind of similar, but with the reproductive crisis lagging behind the climate change. So just quickly, the climate change crisis was ignored for a long time, even though there was good evidence. And then it was accepted as a phenomenon, but with people saying it's not anything to do with us. It just happens and nothing we can do about it and finally people taking responsibility and i see those three steps um, happening with a reproductive crisis initial reports back in 92 were ignored i myself was skeptical of them Um, and um but gradually we got more and more information the 2017 paper was not ignored it was taken actually quite seriously and but still people were saying well this just happens. It's nobody's fault. It, you know, and certainly endocrine disruptors don't have anything to do with it. And now I think we're starting to raise awareness of the risks of the chemicals, what we call everyday, everywhere chemicals in our lives. So, um, I don't see them completely separate. COVID is, you know, a beast of a different, (laughs) of a different nature. It's infectious of course, and, uh, non-environmental and, um, but it's important to talk about how um, the problems of reproductive health have been exacerbated by COVID. And um, I haven't personally studied this. I'm not doing any COVID studies. But from what I read and what I hear, um, this is only making the reproductive crisis worse.
1: Thank you. And um, Annie, I'm going to ask you kind of the same question. Who do you think will care? And um, how can we make people care? Um
3: about environmental justice, about the declining fertility specifically. Um, That's right. I think everyone, I care <laughs> for one, but I think um, who, I think everyone would care. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about this, um, when it comes to like climate change and environmental health, there's something about that word that a lot of people just feel that that over feel overwhelmed right it's kind of like this denial it's bigger than me i don't know what to do about it ah um uh someone else will do it so you kind of have this like tragedy of the commons thing going on um but when it comes to fertility and reproduction um you know that now you just got personal um, and so and I think that's a very powerful frame of, of, of putting it, essentially, um, that, you know, climate change and, and these environmental changes and these toxic chemicals are affecting you. You personally, not just the polar bears, not just the insects and the birds. It's you. Um, there's, you know. Th- th- biologically, things are things are changing in your body. And, and and if you don't care about yourself, okay, but your children are affected and your grandchildren and their children. And so I think um, putting it to that personal level, I think will go a long way and seeing and seeing that connection um, uh, as well. And at the same time, of how and on the flip side of that, of how do we make people care? Again, if you're talking about these crisis, you know, these crises, Everyone's overwhelmed. Everyone doesn't know what to do, and just saying that there's a crisis and there are all these problems doesn't really get us anywhere. And I, one of the things that I thought that was powerful um, from Shauna's book was the emphasis on also solutions. There are things that we can do as individuals, um, as policymakers, as academics, as we start thinking about relevant questions for the community and for the good of society. And so there, there are these concrete steps that we can take. Um, So even though there's a downtrend, even though there's this crisis happening, we made it happen. So we can work to reverse it, and I think that's also a powerful uh, message. So, um, you know you you talk about the problem but you also have solutions um as well in encouraging people and giving that people that sense of hope that there is something we can do on an individual level and in a collective level i think that goes a long way in making people care
2: that was great can i just add something to my answer absolutely i did not really talk about um who could respond to this or should respond to this but one of the things i wanted to add was that this problem of reproductive health has been a secret for a long time this is not something that's in public discussion. So you might, and it's also men particularly don't have a clue about their reproductive health. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of a black box for them, not something to be talked about in a cocktail party. A man would maybe talk about, Oh, I went to the doctor, my cholesterol is high and I got to watch my diet. That's not too embarrassing. Right. You could see that happening. A man coming to a cocktail party saying, I went to a andrologist I had a sperm tested and it's really low. No way. Right. So um, there's a lot of ego involved in this, you know, suppressing this information. I think people don't want to look at it. They don't want to. They want to feel like everything's good to go. When I am get ready to have a baby, I'll just do it. And and I think different talking about differential impact. This is differentially impacting women. Women have been made to feel guilty. About failures of reproductive health for a very long time, you know. So it's just it's assumed that if a couple can't get fertile, it's her fault. If a couple has m- repeated miscarriage, it's her fault. That's actually not true. Now we know it's about fifty fifty. So I think you know maybe people who women who want to you know say wait a minute, guy, it's not just on me. You got to get checked. We got to figure this out together. Um, those women should care. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I gotta, I gotta add to that. I thought that was probably um, one of my favorite chapters in the books that, that you wrote. Is you emphasize the importance of that male accountability, and in a way that is rooted in fact in science, not you know, not just so because oh, I'm a woman and I'm saying this, but it's like this is actual this is evidence based. Um and that ever increasing importance of male factor um infertility that has long been downplayed. And you actually said something that I I they'll probably stick with me for a while. You were like, yeah, fertility is an equal opportunity game. And you know, just because a man doesn't hear his biological clock ticking doesn't mean it's not ticking time. And I thought that was very profound and I thought that was a great way of putting it. Um, and actually, when, you know, in medical school, when we were learning about urology, I, you know, a urologist told me, it was just like, you know, if we really upplayed the fact that all these lifestyle and environmental um, exposures, in fact, you know, impact erectile dysfunction, I'm pretty sure, you know, men would live a much healthier lifestyle. Um, and so that was something that, you know, we learned in,
1: in, medical, in medical school.
2: Great. I'm glad they told you that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, um, I really uh love this conversation that's happening and um Sean, i'm gonna see if you have another um wonderful antidote in this this your you know your your back pocket of anecdotes but um so I think both you and I one thing we have in common is we're both scientists, but we value science communication because you know whether it's a podcast or a book um you know using these kind of forms of uh Science translation outside of you know peer-reviewed literature, you know, really does kind of help you connect, um, connect with different audiences and um, educate uh, a broader swath of, of of people, right? And um, and so to that end, you know, you've been you've been all over the place. You've been on so many, you know, you've been on TV shows, a different podcast. Um, your your book has gotten quite a bit of publicity. Is there um, has anyone, uh, any group, or have there been any individuals that have reached out to you that um, seem to have, you know, kind of um, been, I guess, you know, what's the word? Illuminated by, by your book, or they've they, it's made them change their mind? Or the, has there, you know, been any tangible actions that have, um, re- you know, or policy changes? Um, um, you know, whether from professional societies or, or, or individuals or, um, you know, be- because of your book, like, can you share um, any kind of unexpected kind of um, uh, consequences or implications from um, from this work that you're doing and from being such a kind of, um, you know, public-facing um, um, scientist, uh, 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 you know, after the publication of your book?
2: So I... I think it's too soon. Honestly, it's it's the book came out on February 23rd, uh, <laughs> came out in Great Britain uh, two days ago. Um, but what, one of the things that's extraordinary to me is that I'm getting requests from, I would say, probably 30 countries or 40 countries around the world. The international impact of this is really kind of staggering to me. Um, journalists wanting to talk to me, foreign language editions popping up in remote places like Turkey. We just got, one. Um, and and the fact that these journalists are, uh, and we send them the book, okay, and then they then then they get educated about it, and then they talk about it. So one of the things that's really extremely exciting to me is that we could have. This is a world problem. This is not a U.S. problem, right? Um, And we could and seem to be starting to have a really broad, you know, world-based discussion of these problems, which is just so exciting to me. But um, I think impact in terms of regulation or, you know, talking, I've talked to, you know, the president's task force on on uh, children's health. I've talked to the EPA Children's Health Office. I've talked talking to California EPA. I'm talking to all kinds, anybody who will ask me actually, <laughs> because I, I want to get this out. And hopefully with the new administration, that there's some opportunity to make change. There are clearly people in our government attending these podcasts at double and triple usual numbers, by the way, extremely interested in learning about this. Um, and I think, I hope that it will have an impact, you know, on, on regulation. I'm hoping to talk to more medical, you know, healthcare professionals or people who teach in medical schools. I've talked to a preventive medicine resident who actually is fairly high in the government, who's going to help me do that. And, um, you know, so on all fronts, I'm trying to get the message out to people who will listen. But actually bringing about change, that's a longer haul.
1: Yes, fair enough. I, I feel like I've seen you out in the sphere so much that it doesn't feel like it, it's only been, um, you know, less than two months since your book came out. Because um, So thank you for your service in, in doing all those interviews because, that you know, that takes a lot of time and, um, you know, it, it can be exhausting. Um, so kind of our last question, and but it's not a small question by any means. Um, so I think one thing that we all have in common is, you know, we we don't want science just for the sake of science. We want to improve public health. We want to advance health equity. So um, I know, Shauna, you talk about this in your book, but, um, you know, what what should people do? And, you know, I you know, and maybe a way we could kind of frame this is both you know, advice for the everyday individual, but then, um, you know, also thinking about what is advice also for clinicians and, and, and then lastly, like if, if you could see one policy change, um, you know, what would, what would you want that to be? So kind of thinking about, um, you know, kind of your recommendations, starting with the individual, you know, kind of up through policy.
2: So I think on an individual level, Um, What I hope is that people will recognize the problem, first of all, which, like I said, it hasn't been well recognized. Mm -hmm. They will own the problem for themselves, even if they don't personally want to get pregnant uh, or don't worry about their own reproductive health. But like Annie said, that of their children and their grandchildren. Um, So I think we can't make change unless lots and lots of people recognize the problem. And that hasn't been the case until now. talk about um, lifestyle factors and environmental factors that's the big split and the lifestyle factors are relatively easy and i can even say do what you want to do to protect your heart health because most of the recommendations for heart health are also recommendations for reproductive health and while i'm saying that let me just say there has been a movement now to call reproductive health the sixth vital sign because people with poor reproductive health actually die earlier. And they have more heart disease, they have more diabetes, they have more reproductive cancers and so on. So it actually very early on in life, you can get a signal for your later health in life. And so that's another reason people should care. So take care of your health by not smoking, by exercising, by not being obese, by not binge drinking, by eating good foods. And that we go into that in great detail in the book. Um, But on the chemical side, which I believe is the more important and much harder sell, if you will, is to um, think about everything you bring into your house. Just be aware that everything you bring into your house, into your body, into your mouth, put on your skin, breathe, everything has the potential to impact your reproductive health. So that should be the default assumption so that you say, oh, I'm buying this product. Is that okay? Uh, You might read the label. You might go on some one of many websites, including I always recommend Environmental Working Group, but there are many others, Um, and um, and check it out. So fortunately, there are NGOs that are supplying these resources where you can put this product in, and you can say safe cosmetics. Safe you know, cleaning products, safe laundry products, safe sunscreen, blah blah, blah you know and and do it just take a minute, it doesn't take a long time. There are also apps that people can get to check out the safety of their products so i I think you won't do that unless you believe that it matters. So first, you have to believe it matters, and then you can take action As, so the regulatory level, um one thing you you I think. Oh, gosh. Um, I think the first most important thing is that chemicals be tested, because most of them are not, and they be tested at human-relevant scenarios. So much of testing has little to do with our exposure. Doesn't look at mixtures, doesn't look at low doses, doesn't look at various routes of exposure, doesn't look at us and we want to be seen. We want testing that affects our health directly. Uh,
1: I appreciate both the individual and the policy, um, you know, perspective. And I, you know, one thing I think I would add is that this testing happened before these chemicals are introduced into the marketplace, not afterwards. Because, you know, then it's once the genie's out of the box. You know, like the PFAS forever chemicals, you you can't you can't get rid right. of them. So. Great. I wow. should have
2: said that. I'm glad you did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Annie,
1: do you want to add anything here in terms of, you know, thinking about recommendations or especially for um, kind of advancing health equity or um, considerations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I have to I have to echo about kind of the toxic
3: chemicals regulation, especially from an equity perspective, because we're, you know, right now what we're doing is that we're taking kind of a, innocent until proven guilty approach to a lot of chemicals. And by the time we realize that it's already too late and those chemicals, when they leach out into the water, those forever chemicals, for example, they're, they are disproportionately affecting underserved populations. And so changing that from the root, um, and, um, echoing what Shauna said of, of, of making it relevant to the human experience, having us be seen, um, that's going to be key into preventing all of these downstream effects that will, that, that at the end of the day, have differential impacts. That's something I would add.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been incredibly interesting. Um, you know, also just as a scientist in this, in this space, um, I'm glad we've had a chance to have this conversation and, um, I just, I think it's an exciting time for, um, people working on environment and public health, especially with the change in administration. So um, uh, I think this is, uh, you know, this is the time to, to raise awareness because um, hopefully action
2: will be coming. Thanks so, so much thank for you. having me here. Yeah. And, and lovely to meet you, Annie, and to meet, work with you again, <laughs> Ami. I hope we can continue.
0: That is all for this week, folks. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation from three awesome researchers on a pretty scary subject. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange Donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our Special Projects tab. And Please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and listen to this and all past episodes. And while you're there, leave us a review. Let us know how we're doing. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team, Dr. Ami Zoda, Samar Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Jamaji Wanaji Anwaram, a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley School of Public Health and an MD/MPP candidate at Harvard Medical School and Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Have a great week, folks.